You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I'm talking with someone from Harvard, Shirley. She is one of the leaders of the RCT duplicate initiative and what this is stay tuned it's something really important for everybody working in healthcare RCT duplicate is about trying to see whether we can duplicate real clinical studies randomized clinical studies in real world evidence databases And Shirley is the lead author on this initiative. So stay tuned for a really, really great talk about this. Have you already registered for the conference of the Effective Statistician on April 25th? If not, head over to theeffectivestatistician.com slash conference and register today. As I'm talking to you, recording this, We have nearly 400 people who already signed up to this free and virtual event happening on April 25th from 1 p.m. Central European time to 6 p.m. This is also really, really nice for the East Coast in the U.S. And it will be awesome. We have absolute amazing speakers there. And what I heard from those who registered already, they were really blown away by the lineup. So check out theeffectivestatistician.com slash conference. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library free registration to all PSI webinars and much, much more. Head over to psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician. And today I'm really excited to speak with Shirley Wong about a really important area, and that is real-world data. And here is especially how clinical trials would look like if they would have been conducted on the real-world data area. And there the, there's a really interesting project called RCT Duplicate, where Shirley is the first author on some publications. So I'm very happy to have her on the show today. Hi, Shirley. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Very good. Let me first, if people don't know about you, could you quickly introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm Shirley. I'm an associate professor at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School. I'm an epidemiologist by training, although I also have a master's in statistics, biostatistics. Yeah, I guess that's me. Yeah, cool. How did you get into this area of rural data? It was totally an accident or unintended. When I was doing my PhD, I was thinking I would do chronic disease epidemiology with prospective collection of data on large cohorts and things like that. But one of my mentors had a slot open at the VA and he said, Shirley, you're going to the VA. 
So I went to the VA and I did my dissertation using electronic health records. And that's how I became a pharmacoepidemiologist. Cool. Very good. Yeah. And when I studied statistics at universities, there was not so much of a differentiation between epidemiology and statistics. So we did learn about all kinds of different things and not just about clinical trials, but also lots about epidemiology. And so I'm really glad that these collaborations between all these different functions now, because I think we can learn quite a lot from each other. Let's talk about RCT. Duplicate. What is that actually? Duplicate is a suite of different projects that are all under the same umbrella where we're trying to understand when and how we can use real-world evidence database studies to complement the evidence from randomized clinical trials. And one of the things that's been going on is that people, there's like the myth and magic of randomization and there's discussion of RW versus RCT, but there's also the pushback, like it's RW and RCT. And I think the natural comparison that people have is, do you get the same answer if you do a database study and a trial? And so there's been these piecemeal efforts that look, I did it and I got the same answer, so we can do it. And then other people saying, look, you can't do it because we've got different answers. So we're trying to be a bit more systematic about it. And we have our process for selecting trials that we're going to try and emulate. And we just try to make it very clear what that selection process is. And then we have a large sample covering many different clinical areas. So at the paper that we're about to publish, hopefully, it has 32 trial emulations, including trials in diabetes, there's one in oncology, there's heart failure, there's atrial fibrillation, VTE, all sorts of things like that, fracture. And so we've got a couple of trials in each of these spaces. One of the things also that we're trying to do is, in addition to just simply trying to emulate a large number of trials, is to do this in a very transparent and reproducible way through a process that we've developed with the FDA. And then having done these emulations, we also want to try and understand what are some of the factors that are related to concordance or discordance in the estimates that we get afterwards when we're comparing these RCT database study pairs. Very good. And you just mentioned the FDA, which is, I think, really interesting. This is not just a academic project that one university is interested in. It has a pretty broad stakeholder base. But can you talk a little bit towards that? Yeah, so this is one of the demonstration projects with FDA. So we've been working very closely with FDA. Each of the protocols that we develop through Duplicate has been going through FDA review before we hit the go button. And by that, I think I should probably walk back a little bit for our process of how we go through this emulation. There's a first pass screen just to make sure that, you know, the PICO criteria are potentially reasonably measurable. And then there's feasibility assessment where we check to make sure that we have sufficient power in the databases to have at least equal power to the trial. Otherwise, if we don't have that power, then we don't proceed. And then before doing inferential analysis, we also check, do we have sufficient balance between the compared arms on baseline characteristic to proceed? And if we passes that feasibility check, then we develop this full protocol. We register on clinicaltrials.gov after getting review from the FDA team who has been reviewing through the first and second feasibility phase as well. And then at that point, after it's registered, then we can go on inference, inferential analyses and see what result turns out. That's interesting. So you basically have a multi-step filtering process before you really dive into it. And you mentioned the first step is PICO. And maybe a short reminder for those who are not so familiar with systematic literature review, what does PICO stand for? Sure. It's like the elements of the research question. The P is population, I is intervention, C is comparator, O is outcome, and T is time horizon. If those elements, if we think we can 
create observational analogs of the trial measurements of these criteria that are reasonable approximations, then that passes the first screen, that we can create these analogs with reasonable comparability. Yeah, yeah and the thing is you can have problems on all these different aspects of yes. when you look into real-world data. It starts with, can you clearly identify the patients that are in the clinical trials given that you have lots of in-exclusion criteria in clinical trials that may not be so well documented in real-world data. I guess you also have problems with clearly identifying sometimes even intervention and comparison. Or was that less of a problem? We were doing, there were some placebo comparators for which we tried to identify active comparator placebo proxies. By and large, the majority of the trials had active comparators, so it was less of an issue. But absolutely, there were definitely key measurements that were sometimes not measurable and a critical measurement, we just didn't proceed. But other times we had these Excel spreadsheets as we, we laid out all of these criteria and color coded them, whether we thought it was reasonably approximated, weakly approximated, or not, can't do it at all. Like some things yeah. we can't do at all, just it's not going to die in the next year. And we can't predict that. That's the physician's assessment there. So in that case, like we came up with some proxies that doesn't have a comorbidity score greater than 10 or something like that. Other people might make different choices, but the, we did our best to approximate. Yeah, that's a good, good example. Yeah, if there's a physician assessment or a physician view, you need to operationalize these kind of things. I think similar is probably also with patient perspectives, so PROs or things like that. How did you approach that? So we didn't attempt to emulate any trials that had PROs as the primary outcome. We focused on the primary outcome for each trial, the one that they were powered to detect. And so by and large, a lot of these were more of the major cardiovascular outcomes that might be captured with a hospitalization. Yeah, so I think studies, for example, in psychiatry, all these kind of areas where you heavily develop depend on PROs, it's surely much more difficult area because these are usually not ca captured so easily absolutely that would be much more challenging yeah but on the other hand you can simulate these kind of big outcome studies yeah where you have hard endpoints like survival and things like that so that's very appealing how about the time horizon how difficult was that to do each emulation yeah Mm. Okay, I guess there's multiple factors you can think about for time horizon because we did run longer than we had anticipated for the overall project. And part of the issue was that it was difficult to get trials that could pass the feasibility. These, this is a highly selected sample of trials. Power was probably one of the biggest ones, just not being able to find sufficient numbers that met all inclusion exclusion criteria for the trials in order to move to the next phase. But once something passed that power criterion, we went in two-week cycles. It was a two-week cycle after meeting first feasibility to then develop the preliminary confounder list and develop the rest of the protocol. Two-week cycle for review by FDA, two-week cycle to make revisions, two-week cycle for review, and then move on. That was ideal, but obviously there are going to be delays as problems come up, but that was what we were aiming for. Wow, that's a pretty fast turnaround time, I would say. Cool. And you looked into lots of different disease areas and then filtered both the studies and the real-world data. It was there, in terms of real-world data, which kind of data sources did you look into? 
So for the 32 trials that I'm, that we're most recently about to publish on, those were all using claims databases. So there was Optum Informatics, IBM Markets, it's not IBM anymore, it's Meredith Market Scan and Medicare. But we have additional projects in Duplicate where we're working with EHR data as well as EHR linked to data vamp death data, EHR linked to claims, that sort of thing. And so we're exploring different data sources as well as more complex areas for doing this type of thing like oncology. So we're really more of a focus on oncology trials using EHR registry data. Okay, so you, but you focused on U.S. databases. It is yeah. U.S. databases. Yeah, I think there are some areas outside of the U.S. where potentially more things would be possible. Mm -hmm. If I'm just thinking about certain registries or things like that have long-term data in it, and especially in some of the Nordic countries, you can link all kinds of different data sets together which then make it really appealing. Yeah. So, yeah, but it's good. Probably for yeah. the FDA, it's probably very good to look into the US population. Yes, for <laughs> FDA funded project. <laughs> cool. You mentioned discordance and concordance. Can you speak a little bit into how you measured whether see a clinical trial and observational study were the same concordant or not the same discordant? Yeah, so I don't think it's actually a binary construct. Yes. <laughs> I was just thinking that, yeah. Yeah, so it's a multifaceted animal. So we there is no perfect measure of concordance versus not. So yes. we had three predefined measures, each trying to capture a different aspect, but none of them are ideal. Each of them we recognize has limitations, but we have not come across anything that's better yet, but open to suggestion. And these are aligned with other metrics for concordance that we've seen in other disciplines when they've attempted to evaluate reproducibility or different studies that seem to be addressing the same question. So the three that we had pre-specified as binary agreement metrics were statistical significance agreement, which is basically having the estimates on the same side of null, the confidence intervals on the same side of null. The Second was estimate agreement, which is having the real-world evidence study point estimate falling within the 95% confidence intervals of the trial estimate. The okay. third was statistical significance agreement, and that's basically we created a binary cutoff for the standardized difference. Sorry, did I use the right word? Standardized difference yeah, agreement yeah. is the third one. So that was basically if the standardized difference was less than 1.96, corresponding to alpha of 0.05, then it was considered concordant. And then additionally, we just split, straight up reported what the standardized difference was, so you can get a sense of the continuous magnitude of that, as well as correlation coefficients. Okay, so yeah, I agree. You can have all these different aspects. And you mentioned statistical significance, so basically you would have the same sample size on the real-world evidence like on the RCTs then? No, the sample sizes were quite different often, but they were powered such that the real-world data study, real-world evidence study had at least the same power as the trial. Okay. You looked into things like, basically things like effective sample size and stuff like this. Not effective sample size. I'm not sure what you mean by that. If you do propensity scoring and things like that, you basically can downweigh the patients yeah, to make them match. And as a result, you can get a measure that's called effective sample size. So basically, you get a, if you have, let's say, 100 patients going in, and but there's only 
the weight of 50 patients contributing really to the analysis, then your effective sample size would be 50. And that largely drives the power, not 100%, because of course there's imbalance and other things coming in as well. So we actually did one-to-one matching. So the power calculations were determined based on the matched sample. So okay. that was that was the sample size. Okay, interesting. Cool. So did you then exclude patients that would have been value you could have included in the analysis yes because we didn't do like fine stratification or variable ratio matching we just kept it simple with one-to-one okay very good so let's go to the most exciting part what were the results from rct duplicate what are your kind of broad key takeaways and findings i would say and People could interpret these numbers differently. So this is just my interpretation. Yeah, yeah. That's why I have to do it as a guest on the show. Overall, in the full sample, the correlation coefficients were above 0.8. The standardized estimate and statistical significance agreements were, I believe, 0.75, 0.66, and 0.75. So I would say glass half full for me. I think this is relatively high concordance. Well, to put it into context, there was a paper published in JAMA Network. John Eunides was the last author on that, where they did reanalyses of clinical trials and using individual level, patient level data. And they observed 35% disagreement in conclusions and or interpretation of results after doing reanalyses of the same data for clinical trials. Similarly, John Concato was senior author in another paper where they looked at meta-analyses where there was discordant results in some of the trials that were included and diving into the details of these trials that had discordant results that were included in the same meta-analysis they were really finding differences in the question that was being asked, how things were operationally defined. And when we did a post hoc exploratory analysis, splitting our sample into two groups, one where there was closer emulation of the trial design parameters and one where the, there were more emulation differences, we observed that the concordance increased according to the metrics that we had when we had when we restricted to the sample that had closer emulation and was less good when we looked at the sample that had more emulation differences. I love your approach that you basically looked into what would be the disconcordance and concordance rate if you just duplicate the studies. Because yes, if you run clinical trials and you run the same trial twice, that doesn't guarantee that you have the same outcome. And yeah, if even if you analyze it differently, you can come to different conclusions. Also, that should largely hopefully not be the case, but in reality it is. And so you definitely can't expect 100% concordance or 100% correlation. So I would also say that's pretty good. So given the criteria you had for selecting studies and selecting databases, when you can actually follow these criteria, for me, the conclusion is that you can get pretty good evidence from real-world data. I would agree with that conclusion as well. And although I have no benchmark for the times when we aren't able to emulate closely, but these represent trials or represent database studies that are, to me, asking a slightly different question. And that's where the strength of real-world evidence comes in, is we're asking those questions that the trials either cannot or will not be put into place to answer those questions. So we need this complementary evidence, and that's where real-world evidence comes in. Yep. I completely agree. There is, I've seen so many studies that are 
short term, not big enough to answer certain questions, don't include certain populations. I think it's really, we must look into real world data to answer all these different questions. Also from a timing perspective, yeah, setting up a new study and getting it to be analyzed can take years. Whereas if you can look into existing data, you can get results and get them published within months. Hopefully, it always depends on the internal processes and how, how good the peer review works. But at least you can get it out and present it and can make decisions pretty quickly. I think that is a very good result overall for the field. There was one thing that you mentioned that I also found really interesting. You mentioned you followed a very reproducible and transparent process. And you had a lot of predefined things you went step by step through these things. You agreed with the FDA on topics. That in itself, of course, creates a lot more additional trust into the data and into the results. What is your learning based on this process? I guess I would say it's something that I've heard people from FDA say over and over again is that engage early in the process. They can head you off if you're heading in the wrong direction. And so we engaged, we were engaged before selection of the trials to include. We were engaged when we were doing feasibility assessment. We were engaged when developing the protocol. And we, were, and we got clear from everybody before we registered and ran the analyses. So at each step, there was these touch points just to make sure we're all on the same page. We're all looking at the same things. We all agree. And then we move forward. And we were fortunate in that times were relatively quick to keep things going. But I think that's a format that could be followed by others as well. Yeah, I think that's a really great thing. The other thing is, you also mentioned you had reproducibility. You did each step and, and this is also all traceable. Why, why is your publication? The protocols are linked to, are part of the registrations on clinicaltrials.gov. We also have links. We actually used an analytics platform to help us carry out the analyses. So if we wanted to hit the same button again, we could redo everything. So it's computationally reproducible in addition to having all of the choices documented in the protocols. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I love that approach. I wish things were more like that in general. Yeah, but there's some kind of field moving in this direction. So hopefully we get more to that in the future. So based on your experience with RCT Duplicate, what would be your recommendations for doing real-world evidence analysis now? that you may want to use with the FDA, but even if you don't want to use it with the FDA, what would be your recommendations? I guess I would say start with the protocol, update with amendments, log reasons why you change, when you change it. If you've got other stakeholders involved, engage early, not at the end after you've done it. And if at all possible, make sure that the documentation and code is in such state that it could be rerun easily or shared and made open on like Open Science Foundation or something like that. But that's, again, my personal push for more open science and open research. Yeah. So one question that I rather often get regarding this is, were you publishing the code and stuff as you were moving or only publishing it and making it available to the public when you get the, the paper published? So that's the thing. We were using an analytics platform that the code is proprietary other than the analysis code. So what we have is the links to the platform, which can be shared so that other people can look at 
what is actually happening on the platform. But I think if you do de novo codes, then that's much more easily shared. And there's definitely platforms that you can use to, to share it and have it be a citable resource with its own DOI. Okay, cool. What was your experience with, with such an analytics platform instead of doing it on your own R server or whatsoever? It was, I think it's very helpful for certain uses. If you're not trying to do anything too unusual, like, mm. then it's very easy to encode that in a way and test it to make sure it's validated and, and not have to go get double programming and that sort of thing because it's already been double programmed. So that's really helpful, especially if you've got a team that's trained to use the platform. And my team happened to be pretty versatile with, with the Edian platform because we also use it for a different project, the repeat project. We tried to reproduce 150 published database studies and evaluated the concordance there. I thought it was very useful. There's another benefit to using it, it, even if you are doing something a little bit out of the box, is you can get it started halfway there and then do the analytics in R or something like that. And that's not already built into the platform. Okay, cool. So for the, anything that is a little bit more innovative and more cutting edge. You do Download and do stuff. it separate. Yeah, cool. There were a lot of news about RCT duplicate. And with your ongoing publications, by the way, there's a whole homepage RC duplicate where you can find more info about Shirley and the rest of the team, as well as all the different publications. And we'll put that into the show notes. Do you think that your research will have an influence on how we do medical research, how the R&D move forward, how reimbursement publications and things like this will move forward. I'm hopeful that the results will influence regulators in HTA to think and be more supportive of using rollout evidence to inform the decisions that they make about approvals as well as reimbursements. I think we've had lots of discussions for duplicate and other projects in a similar space that may be moving the needle more for some organizations that may have had more hesitation in the past about the credibility of this type of evidence. Yeah, that is very good. And I think it's not just the evidence, but I think you also set a precedent for how to actually do the research, which is one big thing in the evidence. Yeah, so even if people trust the data, they may not trust the process to get those results from the data. But the way you did it, and if you do it in a transparent and reproducible way, and document all your decisions and why you did this choice and why you selected this population and so on, then it's much easier to follow and trust and critique and discuss than if there's just a 3,000 word paper somewhere <laughs> where everything is discussed very high level. I think that's another big gift that you have for the research community here. What yeah, would you I say? <laughs> the principle that we're trying to follow and always constant improvement, of course, is not just to say, trust us, but to say, we're showing you our work. So here you go. Yeah. And that's where you can have the biggest brand like Harvard, for example, <laughs> in the world, but still people want to understand what's really going on and also potentially replicate similar things for their own, for their own indications for the next Pico that they're interested in. So that's really helpful. Thanks so much, Shirley. For the last question, personally for you, what did, how did this project help you personally? What kind of personal impact did it have for you? I guess I would say personal 
row in a sense. I actually walked into this project when sort of midstream. It had been initially started by Sebastian Schneeweiss and Jessica Franklin. And after Jesse left, I walked into this and had to pick up and mobilize a team to try and get everyone pointed in the same direction. And that sort of having thought of myself more as a technical type of person, really trying to develop the skills to get people organized and moving together, passing the ball back and forth and keep everything moving to meet our deadlines and just have things go smoothly was a different sort of skill set to develop. Awesome. Yeah, so that is really a nice story that you jumped into it, got an opportunity to lead and then, yeah, jump over your hurdles and over your limits and become a leader. That is awesome. And I think there's a lot of academic credentials, of course, coming out of this, which is great. Thanks so much, Shirley. That was an awesome discussion. I wish you all the best for your continued work on RCT Duplicate and also on the repeat project. I'm really curious to see what's going on there. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Shirley as much as I did. If you want to enjoy a really, really nice treat, then don't forget to sign up for the Effective Statistician Conference on April 25th theeffectivestatistician.com slash conference. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain and her team at VVS who helped with the show in the background and thank you for listening. Read your potential, read great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.